0: Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Kerry Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions. But we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me today, and and this is a real treat, especially for me, this gentleman's had a huge impact on my career from the 90s into 2000s. He was considered one of the most interesting people in tech behind Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Multiple books, including Code Complete, Software Estimation, both Jolt award-winning books, very accomplished author. Of course, I'm talking about Steve McConnell, Steve uh, just super excited you're here and, and can't thank you enough for joining me tonight.
1: Ryan, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: For this conversation, I think there's two areas that, we'll, that I'd like to look into. First of all, there was a conversation, perhaps a year and a half, I think it's almost two years ago now, between you and Ron Jeffries about no estimates. As the listeners know, that's a very popular topic on this podcast. We've had Woody Zool, Vasco Duarte, uh, Neil Killick, and some others come on and talk about it. But we haven't really had you know, the other side of it. And I wanted to make sure that at some point we we circled back and said, now, wait a minute. If we're going to really go into the no estimate side, we should go into the hashtag estimate side and make sure that we're not missing some good things there as well. And I can't think of a better person than you to do that. But I'd also like to get into estimation itself in an agile context. So I think those are the two areas that if we can zero in on, I think people will really get a lot out of it. Does that sound fair? Sounds great. So this conversation you had with Ron Jeffries, very well documented. Certainly don't want to rehash it here on the podcast. We'll make sure we get links to your initial video uh, about your initial position on no estimates and then some of the back and forth between you and Ron. We'll get that all linked up. Can you summarize how you approached no estimates and perhaps what brought you into that conversation?
1: Sure. Uh, I think... uh You know, the conversation uh, with Ron evolved into a fairly elaborate conversation with a lot of different points. And as you mentioned, on my end, concluded with a blog post called 17 Theses on Software Estimation. So anytime you're talking about 17 theses, I think you're going to have a hard time summarizing that uh, simply. Uh, I think really where it started was I felt like in the discussions I was reading about no estimates that there were some pretty significant, I thought, unexamined assumptions that were behind the no estimates position that I was surprised that no one had challenged and so I wanted to come out and say look you know I, I think there's some interesting ideas in uh, associated with no estimates but I also think that it's important to put those interesting ideas in a context and say is this the main story uh, and are we really trying to move the whole world toward no estimates or is this really more of a niche case where Uh, yeah, there's a role for no estimates to play. But at the end of the day, really, it's a niche role. And most of the world lives and dies, and actually wants estimates. And so uh, the original video that I made really basically just said, look, you know, one of the one of the agile values is supposed to be customer collaboration. And the customers we work with, by and large, value estimates—they—they they want estimates. They use them for legitimate business planning purposes, and so to me, it just seemed from the get-go inconsistent with stated agile values to take what we see day in day out from uh, customers who actually do want estimates, uh, and to say no, we're not going to give you estimates. I just—I didn't—that didn't compute for me. Uh, so I wanted to present basically kind of the common business. Uh, context in which uh, businesses legitimately want estimates and say, in my view, a lot of the pushback from no estimates really doesn't have a whole lot to do with customer collaboration and providing what the customer actually wants. It really has more to do with just a lack of skill or lack of knowledge in creating good estimates.
0: When it comes to creating good estimates in an agile context, where do you think teams are falling short. Where do you think the struggles are happening that would make such an idea like No Estimates resonate or even possible?
1: Well, I think, you know, to me, this kind of goes back to one of my complaints about uh, the way Agile started. I think I think a lot of good things have come out of Agile and some really significant advances in practice have come out of Agile. In the very early days of Agile, and I'm talking about, say, the first one to two years after the, the uh, Agile Manifesto was created, there were some folks that were going around and I spoke at conferences side by side with some of these folks in that era who were justifying agile. I thought on uh, the basis of a false premise and that false premise really was it's impossible to get good requirements. Uh, And I just completely disagreed with that. What I think is impossible is it's impossible to get perfect requirements And I agree with that. I agree it's impossible to get perfect requirements. I think it's impossible to get requirements that don't change whatsoever. I agree with that. Uh, I think it's impossible to get good requirements if you don't have well-developed requirement skills, which the vast majority of software practitioners don't have. Uh, So as an empirical observation, it's difficult to get good requirements, and we often get bad requirements. I would agree with that. Uh, but we, my company at that point had been in business for 10 years and we had worked with lots of companies to help them get better at getting requirements. And while it might have been the case that nobody ever got perfect requirements, we had lots and lots of examples where companies had, had, in fact, gotten good requirements. And so while I was enthusiastic about a lot of the agile practices, I was not enthusiastic about the rationale that was being used at the time uh, to support those And I think we fast forward 10 years and we see kind of similar arguments being made in favor of the no estimates, which is basically people running around saying uh, it's impossible to get good estimates or, you know, I was on a project and the estimates really weren't worth anything Uh, or, you know, variations on that theme. And I guess my response would be pretty similar, which is, If you don't know what you're doing, it is difficult to get good estimates. That is true. Uh, And if you're making an empirical observation that lots of people produce bad estimates, that is also true. Uh, But I don't think the most useful response to that is to just throw out the attempt to get good estimates. I think the most useful response is develop the professional skills that are needed to create good estimates uh, so that we're really talking about. Uh, coming at the whole problem from a position of competence and strength rather than coming at the whole issue from a, a position of being maybe strong in scrum skills but weak in estimation skills.
0: How do you respond to the argument of estimate versus forecast? You know, some will say estimates, and I think that word, as you rightly pointed out in your 17th theses, that word is used sloppily. It's a word that's used to mean you know, commitments, targets, estimates, all sorts of different things. But in this case, let's just say an estimate in the, the good old fashioned PMP sense of it, yeah. where it's you know, you do the full set of requirements, where you try to big design up front, you do your work breakdown structure, uh, you estimate you know, your ranges, you have your, your pessimistic, your median, your, and your optimistic, and you do all those great things. We call that an estimate. Yeah. Now, how now versus a forecast? So, what I've seen in the no estimates discussion, I think there is a group of people who are very serious about the no in no estimates, and then I think there are others who are looking to figure out if there's ways to limit the dysfunction that can be caused by bad estimation. And so, I think one of those solutions is shifting to a forecast as opposed to those that that old school notion of estimation. Does that (laughs) hold any water with you, or is that is that not uh, not the proper framing?
1: I think that – basically, I think that whole framing is uh, – exa- it presents numerous examples of the lack of understanding. Really, I hate to say but the lack of even a basic understanding of what uh, – of software estimation. To start with the definition, the idea that estimates and forecasts are different – again is just doesn't understand what estimation is. A forecast is a specific kind of estimate. Namely, a forecast is an estimate of some future occurrence. Not all estimates are about the future. So if I go out and I estimate the size of a crowd that shows up for some political event or I estimate the number of square feet in an existing house, there's no forecasting there. It's purely estimating something that already exists. In software, for the most part when we talk about estimation, we are in fact talking about the specific kind of estimation known as forecasting because we are talking about estimating some future occurrence uh, so the idea that there's some distinction in software between forecasting and estimation I think just doesn't doesn't uh, even have to start with a basic understanding of, of what the words mean. Um, the other examples you mentioned of sort of the, uh, you, I think you characterize it as a PMP approach of best case, worst case, and so on. You know, the fact that somebody presents best case, worst case, expected case doesn't mean that they actually had any skill going into those. They can still just be sticking their finger in the air and sort of applying their gut feel and saying, okay, well, this is what the best case feels like to me. This is what the worst case feels like to me. At that level, we're still really talking about guessing. Um, you know, psychologically, I think there is a benefit to actually, at least, even at the gut level, thinking through the cases uh, and not just getting stuck automatically and reflexively on on the best case. Uh, but really, those should be backed up with uh, with uh, some more serious uh, analysis and ideally some some appeal to historical data, uh, ideally project data. Uh, that informs those best cases, worst cases, and, and so on. Uh, you know, one of the things I find interesting is that as some of the work has come out in No Estimates, and, and as you said, some of the focus on that has really been more like better estimates than no estimates, is I see a lot of ideas that essentially get resurrected from my 2006 book, uh, Software Estimation Demystifying the Black Heart. Uh, you know, you made the comment about trying to avoid pathologies associated with bad estimates. Well, that's why I wrote the book back in 2006 was this idea of people estimating badly and then causing all kinds of organizational turmoil as a result of that is not a new idea. That's been something that's been going on the entire time software has existed, I think. Uh, and that's a big part of what caused me to to uh, write the book. So, um, I mean, it's nice to see people – maybe having a renewed interest or, you know, next generation discovering interest in this topic. But I think uh, this is an area where a lot of people have been looking at this topic for a long time and it would probably be beneficial for people to actually take a look at what's already been done and and not feel like they have to reinvent the wheel.
0: Yeah, I I certainly agree with that part. And I wish that that more uh, people in our field would have read your book because I think that the reason – that no estimates resonates at least then this is just my opinion this is not a stated fact or it's not an alt fact it's just my opinion you know one of the reasons it resonates is the damage that you mentioned that is done by uh, bad estimation processes and then eventually what's done with the estimate and, and so I think that had some of those things really gotten through our industry a little quicker maybe a little sooner Uh, Perhaps such an idea wouldn't take hold.
1: I I think we have a tendency in software on all sides of any issue to uh, compare poorly informed, unskilled application of the point of view that we don't like with well-informed, competent application of the point of view that we do like. Uh, And so I think one of the threads running through the no estimates movement is to compare how a competent, uh, skillful scrum team can implement in a very reactive way and responsive way to how a team that's not very competent in estimation will work if they do kind of a brain dead plan driven approach to <laughs> a project that started with, uh, on the basis of bad estimates. And of course, this is a fallacious comparison. What we really want to do is look at what possibilities do we open up when we have competency in estimation and what possibilities do we open up when we have competency in an implementation approach like Scrum? Uh, I don't think it makes sense to compare you know, competent Scrum to incompetent estimation or the opposite. It makes just as little sense to compare incompetent Scrum to competent uh, estimation. What we really ought to be doing and really what's been my focus for the last 20, 25 years has been trying to increase the professionalism of people working as software professionals. And, uh, you know, do we have to estimate every day as software professionals? Well, no, not really. But do we need to estimate from time to time? Yeah, most software professionals need to estimate from time to time. It's not the center of our job, but it is an uh, important secondary skill in the job of a software professional. And I think you know, a true professional is going to try to develop some competence in both those primary skill areas and in those secondary skill areas. And I see estimation as uh, as uh, one of those important secondary skills.
0: So perhaps that's that's a big gap because I'd still, you know, it, it's part of the reason that I, I believe you stated that you or that you wrote your book is that so there were bad concepts out there. There's bad practices out there. I think we can all agree some of those bad practices and concepts around estimation still exist. And so perhaps many of us have never seen, or maybe many, maybe many of the listeners out there have never seen what professional estimation on a scrum team looks like. So perhaps you could walk us through some of the activities, some of the practices. And of course, I know that this is like a week-long class, but that, that it would normally be. But what are some of the things that you would expect to see from a group of professional software developers working on a scrum team? who are performing their estimation activities.
1: Yeah, so um, you're right. It is a multi-day class. It's not a week-long class, but it's a two-day class. Um, and you know, we can usually accomplish quite a bit in a two-day class on this topic for whatever that's worth. Uh, the, the concepts are, they're not intuitive. They're not terribly difficult, but they're not concepts people are necessarily going to come up with on their own. I think if we're going to talk about what competent estimation looks like on a Scrum project, we have to talk about the whole project lifecycle, including the part before the project even gets approved. Uh, so, if if we're in a context where let's let's start with the the essentially the budgeting context, where the organization has a list of twenty projects that it would like to take on, but it has budget for maybe ten of those projects. So. Before we even start doing Scrum, before the team is even necessarily even assembled, somebody in the business is going to have to come up with a business case that says, we think this project is worth doing. We think that the benefit is going to outweigh the cost. And that is going to involve estimation on both sides. It's going to involve estimation of the benefit. It's also going to involve estimation of the cost. You know, We don't live in a world where every idea is a good idea and where we actually have the resources to do every idea that anybody ever comes up with. And so we actually have to choose which ideas we do and which ideas we don't. That's an important uh, business planning, financial planning function of any business. So early in the project, I mean, before the project even really officially starts, there is a need to come up with some sort of a rough estimate for the project. Uh, And I think this is something that a lot of technical uh, folks don't understand is the business has a legitimate need to come up with an estimate for the project. Do we have all the details pinned down? No, we don't. Are we going to be able to estimate to uh, three decimal places? No, of course, we are not going to be able to do that. Uh, I think one thing that a lot of uh, that gets uh, where we start running into problems with estimation is a lot of organizations have pretty ineffective commitment processes. And so At some level, they know that before the project is really pinned down in detail, we're not going to be able to estimate with a high degree of precision on that kind of project. But we still have a need to estimate with a low degree of precision to decide whether we even want to take the next step of the project. And so that needs to happen. Now, we haven't started doing iterations yet. We don't even necessarily have the team in place yet. Uh, and, And we have already started estimating. And so one of the things I think is important to understand about that is we're not talking about individual contributors on a scrum team creating estimates at that point. We are talking about somebody who actually has some significant skill in estimation per se uh, who is estimating the project at that level. And And it is not important for the kind of estimate we're talking about to have the people from the project actually doing the work. For somebody who thinks that is important, it, that likely means that they're trying to apply the wrong by the wrong kind of estimation practice too early in the project. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so that would be a, an indication, I think, of basically poor estimation practice. Um, as the project gets authorized... So, Steve, can I, can
0: I jump in there for a second? Sure. So because I, I think this is an area there, that there is a lot of confusion on. And, uh, and again, I, I think it's very fair to say a lot of people are not as educated as perhaps some should be. In this area, but for, for what you just said about a different kind of estimation. So we're we're pre-project. We don't have team members uh, assigned yet. So we're we're at this kind of inception phase uh, of of the pro- or actually or even prior to inception. It's really just should we do one or or the other. We have a professional estimation person, someone who's very well educated in estimation practices. This is their profession, trying to do estimates across a number of projects to pick. So basically, the the, uh, the assumption baked into that is this type of estimation is at a a program type level and wouldn't carry into the actual project execution. Is that right?
1: Yes, that is right. Okay. And uh, and and unfortunately, that is one of the assumptions that is sometimes violated, which is we do have this uh, phenomenon known as the anchoring effect, which says that an early estimate. No matter how poorly founded, becomes an anchor against which every estimate throughout the rest of the project gets compared. So, uh, if we have a if we have a very early estimate where somebody says we think this project is going to take a total of 75 staff months, and uh, we then do uh, another four weeks of work on the project, and we now know it's going to take 125 staff months. Mm-hmm. It's very common at that point for the organization to sort of blanch and say, well, gee, how come this estimate is so much higher? And the answer is because that earlier estimate was really based on not much of anything, and the only thing that earlier estimate was even supposed to be used for was to decide whether it looked like it made enough sense to take the next step on the project. Um, But sometimes organizations' commitment processes are, are messed up in a way that it can be pretty hard to get rid of that initial 75 staff month, uh, estimate, uh, even though, um, even though in a, in a couple of weeks later we might have a much better estimate, you know, and I think what this really goes, goes back to is most, large mature organizations have some kind of defined stage gate process which actually if it's used well can really be supportive of effective estimation and an effective commitment process but just as we see lots of people who really are not very skilled at estimating and for that matter not very skilled at doing requirements work we also see an awful lot of cases where people don't know how to work their own organization's stage gate process effectively and so You know, In an organization where the staff understands how to use their stage gate process, there doesn't have to be a lot of turmoil around an initial 75 staff month estimate that a few weeks later turns into 125 staff month estimate, because everybody understands that's the nature of going through the gates and phases in that, um, or stages in that stage gate process. Uh, But in an awful lot of cases, we see staff that doesn't really understand how to work their own process, and so... You know, part of it is the upper levels in the organization don't want that 75 staff month number to get bigger. But part of it is that the the technical staff doesn't really understand how that process is supposed to work. And so they don't understand necessarily that they have license to change that number at the next gate. And in fact, they might be expected to. Um, so, I mean, again, I my focus for a long time has been on increasing software professionalism and increasing the level of skills. Some technical people tend to view their their necessary areas of expertise as basically being coding, designing, testing. But I do think that some of these other skills actually end up mattering uh or affecting people's lives uh just as much or in some cases more.
0: No, I, I think that's a that's a fair explanation. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you though. Please keep going. This is uh...
1: Okay, so we've sure so we've gone through the basically the uh the project approval process. Uh, In in an effective estimation approach, we're going to be estimating uh, a number of times over the course of a project. And I think it's useful to think about the way that estimation's role changes as we work our way through a project. Very early in the project, in particular before the project even gets approved, the purpose of estimation really is to present an estimate that is going to be consumed by business decision makers outside of the project team, for the purpose of supporting kind of large-scale, coarse-grained business decisions. Uh, early, Very early in the project, maybe even before the project exists per se, the business is going to be making decisions like, A, should we even do this project? What is the cost-benefit, and is the benefit good enough to do the project They're gonna be making decisions like, should we start this project now, or should we start this project six months from now? How does it fit into our priority queue? They're gonna be making decisions like, how many people do we put on the project? Is this a five-person project, or a 10-person project, or a one-person project? So we're talking about really coarse-grained decision-making. Interestingly enough, once the project finally hits that gate where the funding is approved, and the project officially is authorized, and the project gets underway, the role of estimation really changes significantly at that point. And what's interesting about that, going back to your original question, is which was what is the role of the Scrum team in uh, in estimation? Really, prior to that point, the Scrum team may not even exist per se, and so the estimates are are being created by somebody else. Once we hit that go point and the team is assembled and or the the work starts flowing to that team. Well, now the role of estimation is kind of different. Now the role of estimation is much more inward-looking. It's really for the team to manage itself. It's for the team to assess how its progress is going and whether the progress is going according to plan. If the original estimates were good and then the ensuing estimates show that everything is going according to plan – The audience for those those re-estimation activities really stays internal to the team. The team just uses it to kind of check on itself and plan its own work and so on. The only time uh, that an estimate done later in the project gets exposed outside the project team really is typically when the re-estimation shows that a gap is opening up between the original estimates and the observed uh, or re-estimates on the ground And if there is a gap opening up, then we have to go back and tell the project sponsors or the financial organization or the marketing group or whoever it is, we have to tell them that we are opening up a gap and either we're going to be overrunning the budget or overrunning the schedule or underrunning the the functionality. Uh, And so that is the case. You know, those are painful cases uh, when those occur. The nice thing about estimation in a scrum context is if the scrum team is really a good performing scrum team paying attention to estimation, then they really should be doing things like calculating their velocity, uh, having a release burn down, projecting out how many more sprints it will take to burn all the way through the release burn down and using that to, to uh, forecast or project or estimate those all mean the same thing in this context uh, to forecast when they're going to be done. Uh, And the awesome thing about this is on a well-run scrum project, after uh, once the team is performing effectively as a team and we've gone through a fairly small number of iterations, you know two or three iterations, something like that, we really have a pretty darn good ability to create a longer range forecast of when we're going to be done and in a waterfall project, we never would have had that ability that early in a project to to confirm or deny uh, how good those those uh, sort of concept level estimates were but in a scrum project, we can get that ability to to uh, course correct very early in the project. Uh, and so I think one of the things I find uh, uh, really disappointing is the number of Scrum teams I see that actually don't do that. They don't calculate velocity, and if they do, they don't use it for longer-range forecasting. They Those teams are essentially denying their businesses important information early in a project that the business actually would would valuably use to make course corrections earlier rather than later. Uh, whereas a well-run Scrum Scrum project where the team is doing that, you know, no business is ever going to want to get the news that we can't get everything we thought we wanted when we thought we wanted it for the money we thought we wanted it for. But I will say bad news delivered early is always better than bad news delivered late. And in a well-run Scrum project, we have a vastly enhanced ability to uh, detect uh, bad news. If there is bad news, we have a vastly improved ability to detect that early. And so that's, you know, that's fantastic.
0: I think there would be some heartburn over the idea that someone else is doing estimates that the team could inherit. But I think, as you noted, I mean, there should be some some maturity in the management staff as well. Because I, I don't, and, and perhaps it's, it's the way that some of this was framed or, you know, the asynchronous uh, discussions that went back and forth online. But it's one of those where, yes, certainly software developers in the, in the scenarios that you laid out have to become good at estimation. But at the same time, there is some responsibility at a management level to use those estimates, I guess, in a fair way. I mean, would you agree <laughs> with
1: that? I think the concept of fair is not really a business concept. I I would say effective.
0: Um, Well, there is a humane humane aspect of software development because we're all human beings doing this. I mean, we're emotional beings. We are uh, logical beings, sometimes illogical beings. And so when an estimate's handed, like the anchoring effect, for example, well, our professional said it's 75. Why is it 125? Go back and do it again. I I would call that a, a poor management process in and yeah. of itself, right? I, I would not.
1: I I mean well, I mean, I want to be clear about what I'm saying. I, I would disagree with in that point. I think that the technical staff has a role to play here. And I think that I think the underlying premise of the question is one that I, I want to really put on the table and look at, which is it feels like there's an underlying premise in that question that the interests of the business and the interests of the staff are somehow not aligned. And the fact of the matter is, I think the interests of the business and the interests of the staff are a lot more aligned than not. And software staff tend to get really focused on the idea that sometimes a business might come back and say, is there any way you can get that estimate back down to 75 staff months? And then various things happen, and eventually the staff finds itself committed to a 75-month commitment, and then they end up working too much overtime, and then they don't meet the commitment because even the 75 months wasn't realistic, et cetera. I think it's important to understand that in that scenario, which everybody's been in and which is a painful scenario, nobody won in that scenario, including the business. The staff didn't win because they basically couldn't deliver on what they said they were going to deliver on, uh, and they had to work too much, and they probably delivered something that they were disappointed in. So they certainly didn't win. But the business didn't win either. The business didn't get what it thought it wanted. It didn't get the thing when it thought it was going to get it. There was a tremendous amount of disruption to the business by having the thing run over budget and that causes ripple effects through the business's financial plans and so on. The business can't start the next project that it planned to start when it wanted to start it because the earlier project wasn't done when it said it was going to be done. That's disruptive to business planning. So the business isn't happy with how all this stuff went either. And so if we go back to the original scenario and we say, well, what happened? Well, I think what happened is if there was initial anchor of 75 staff months and then some more work was done and it really looks like the answer is more like 125 staff months, what I think we need to dig into is what happened to not get that 125 staff month re-estimate accepted? Well, I think there can be a couple things that could happen there. One is that the business doesn't have a good commitment process. And that certainly can be a factor. The business may have actually already committed on the basis of that very premature 75 staff month uh, estimate. And that is a problem. And that's a problem that needs to be addressed at the business level. Uh, If that is the case, though, then whoever presented that 75 staff month estimate in the first place should have been skilled enough in estimation at that point to not be presenting that 75 staff month estimate. They should have been presenting some different estimate or a range or a much coarser number than that. You know, maybe they should have been saying, at this point, we think it's about 10 staff years, rather than presenting an overly specific, precise number like 75 staff months. Um, So one possibility is that the commitment process is broken, and we certainly have seen that. Uh, even though, if the commitment process is bo- broken, I think the technical staff's participation in that is worth taking a look at. The other possibility is that the commitment process is okay, but the technical staff doesn't react effectively when the business comes back and says, Wow, how come this is now 125 staff months instead of 75? I think that technical staff have this sort of personality flaw that in which They expect the business to be happy and cooperative when the business receives bad news. And if the business has been thinking, oh, this is 75 staff months, and now we go into a meeting and we tell them, no, it's 125 staff months, that is bad news. And we cannot realistically expect the business to be happy about receiving that bad news. What we can expect is we can expect the business to probe And we can expect the business to question, and we can expect the business to try to problem solve to get back to what they thought they were going to get, to get back to that 75-staff-month number. That is a natural process. In my view, that's a healthy process. If the business just – automatically rolls over and says, oh, yeah, that's fine. We just increased by 50 staff months. We just increased by 67%. Uh, I don't think the business is doing its job if it does that. Part of the business's job is to try to figure out how to get the work done for a cost that makes sense. So the idea that the business is just going to roll over and say, okay, that's fine, thanks – is not a realistic idea. And I think further, it's not even a healthy idea.
0: And it's certainly not an idea that I'm advocating. So I fully expect that if I come back to a stakeholder, you know, the person who's writing the check and I say, look, it's 125. If I provide that estimate, uh, I would expect them to ask questions. I would expect to be challenged. And if I don't have a good story, I expect to have that new estimate rejected. I think that's part of, part of the game. But a, a scenario that from a, a number of years ago is you know, we got all of, this, all of the technical people in one room. We flew everyone to the corporate headquarters. We, we put our heads together. We tried to figure out what a project estimate would look like after uh, the business side had come up with their own estimate. Ours was double what they expected uh, with a very clear case where even senior leadership on the IT side was uh, adamant that this was correct. So we, the due diligence was there. It was all taken care of. A stakeholder said, look, we've already committed to this. If it doesn't hit this, I'm going to get fired, so make it fit. And, of course, then we went down your crash and burn scenario where both, <laughs> both sides lose. You know, half the staff quit. The other st- half was burned out. Uh, that person found a good scapegoat and kept their position. And You know, the bad decisions all around. Yeah. Um, that's really what I'm worried about as far as like business pushing back. I, so I actually have fiduciary responsibilities and I do this all the time. It's when I get an answer of um, a different, if I get an answer that I wasn't expecting, what I find is there's a lot of assumptions that were made on both sides that weren't clear. Yeah. And once those are vetted out, and I think that's really what the business and the developers are doing collaboratively, hopefully is you know, perhaps there were assumptions on the business side. There were assumptions made on the dev side and hopefully those get vetted out into actual facts and actual decisions, and then there's some alignment around why that number's higher. If that's not happening, that's a dysfunction.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think, I mean, uh, the scenario you described is interesting because it sounds like you had pretty high confidence in your higher estimate, uh, and and then things kind of went downhill quickly from there. But I don't see any estimation problem in the scenario you just described. I see an ineffective manager who made a bad decision uh, that was bad for the company. Uh, and is the, the topic of estimation is only peripherally related to that. Uh, you know, the estimation work was good uh, as far as you described it. I'll take your word for that. Uh, but the decision-making around that estimate, uh, the decision-making was – uh, was not good. And I think maybe here's a useful time to insert a distinction I think is important uh, between what I would refer to as estimates, targets, and commitments. And the way I would unpack the scenario you just described is to say that, you know, the work that your team did, I think, is fairly characterized as an estimate. You went through a fairly elaborate amount of work, it sounds like, came up with an analytical prediction of the cost schedule and functionality of of the work. So that's all good. The problem was that the person you were presenting it to had already apparently made a commitment and that's not an estimate, that's a commitment. They had committed to something on the basis of something. I, I don't know from your story what that was, but they had already committed to something else. Sure. I think that, you know, the thing I don't like about that is I don't see any reason for the technical team to take ownership of that. If if that were me in that scenario, you know, when they say I'm gonna lose my job, I'm I'm not gonna be a jerk about it, but you know, they're the ones who made the commitment they shouldn't have made. And I think I would probably say something like, you know, look, you know, I want to differentiate between an estimate and a commitment. It sounds like you've made a commitment uh, to whoever you made that commitment to. I think that's unfortunate because our estimate is now saying that we basically don't have any chance of delivering on that commitment um you know we cannot reduce the estimate because this is our best analytical prediction of how long uh how long it will take or how much it will cost to deliver this amount of work uh you know if that commitment really is cast in stone and we can't renegotiate the commitment and if in fact that commitment is for the combination of cost schedule and functionality then i don't have a really good answer for you what our estimate is telling you is we've got early notice that we're not going to be able to deliver on that commitment now, if your commitment was, in fact, for schedule and cost, but not for details of functionality, then, yeah, absolutely. We can go through and we can really look at the functionality and we can pare it down to a point where we can deliver some amount of functionality for for that committed cost and schedule. But, um, And I think normally when I've had conversations like that, there has turned out to be more wiggle room than uh, – uh, than is initially presented I think a lot of times when a higher estimate comes in there's some sticker shock and people start thinking with their lizard brain instead of with their rational brain but if if you can give people time to calm down and process then um, eventually they can get to the point where they say well yeah you know we did say you know something in this ballpark we can go back to them now with uh, you know some options for functionality and so on and you know maybe we can find something that you know that'll work.
0: Yeah, and I I agree with you. I've I've actually the most typical scenario is what you outlined in in that we find out which part of the the iron triangle isn't the firmest, and we start working it working away at that. Uh, my my example was one fringe case. Typically, you're right. The initial sticker shock. Everyone needs to take thirty minutes, go for a walk, and come back and have <laughs> a more level headed discussion. And yep. people typically are reasonable. But I think you bring out an important. Uh, characteristic of a professional software developer, which I wholeheartedly agree with in that we have to be able to speak truth to power and and actually stick with it. Like if we actually have gone through um, a detailed breakdown of the work, we've given a good faith estimate and we've done that with skill to negotiate it downwards afterwards leads to that scenario where no one wins. And I think the ability to, to have that mature conversation as you laid it out you know well then is scope flexible well if not then is schedule flexible well then can you add more money having those conversations i think those are critical if you're in a situation where it is an estimate driven project and as you noted most projects are estimate driven so if you're in that situation the ability to have that mature conversation is necessary and i think it is sometimes lacking i do i, yeah. I fully agree with you there
1: I think part of it is how we go into the conversation. And I think sometimes we go into those conversations thinking it's going to be a negotiation. I have I, I became convinced quite a long time ago that viewing estimate discussions as negotiations was a counterproductive way to look at them. And the reason I say that is in a negotiation, we have people sitting on opposite sides of the table whose interests are not aligned. You know, my interest is in some way opposed to your interest you know if we practice win-win negotiation then we employ creative solutions and we try to make the pie bigger before we divide it but at the end of the negotiation we still divide the pie because our interests are are not comp- are not the same in most business contexts, we are not on the opposite side of the table from the party we're having that discussion with. We're on the same side of the table. You know, We both want the project to be successful. We both want the customer to be happy. We both want to be successful in the marketplace. There's nothing being negotiated. What we're doing instead is problem solving. And I think if we can approach those discussions as problem solving discussions and really understand what our role in the problem solving discussion is – I think that's a way better mindset to go into the discussion with. So I think the best way to approach those discussions from the technical, technical leader, technical manager point of view is to say that your role in that discussion is to be the person who is most knowledgeable about the delivery capability of your team or your organization. And that phrasing is quite specific. You're the person who's most knowledgeable about the delivery capability of your team or organization. And, and in that problem-solving discussion, it is important that you actually play that role. No one else in that room is gonna be playing that role if you don't. The marketing person's not, the salesperson is not, the program manager is not. If anybody's gonna play that role, it has to be you as the technical leader, technical manager. Uh, and so it is important for the sake of the organization that you actually play that role. And if you don't play your role, Meaning, if they say, can you just cut your estimate down to 75 and you say, yeah, okay, but in your heart you know that you really can't, then guess what? The organization now has made a bad decision based on bad data, and you are the one who agreed to the bad data. And so in that discussion, for the sake of the organization, it's really important that you actually say, look, you know, I wish I could tell you that there was some way that we could deliver this for 75, but we've looked at this all different ways and we have come to the conclusion that it really is going to be 125 now you know if the the fixed point on the iron triangle as you say really is the 75 number then we can certainly go back and you know look at what options we can have to pare down the feature set or you know take a different approach somehow to see what we can deliver for 75 uh you know so that's the problem solving mode of it is just saying look you know and I think the other option that you always have to be willing to to put on the table is to say you know I can't tell you whether this idea makes sense for the business at 125 if this is a bad idea at 125 you know certainly my team I'm sure we can be tasked to do something else but you know if this is a good idea at 75 and a bad idea at 125 then maybe it's a bad idea uh, and sometimes I think technical technical leaders are not willing enough to just, um, put the option on the table of not doing the project. I think what happens in practice is actually that at 75, the business has justified the project as what I think of as the no-brainer business case, which is at 75, the business is thinking, oh, yeah, this is easy. It's definitely a good idea at 75. I think what really happens is when you come back with your est- revised estimate of 125 is it's not a no-brainer anymore. Now the business has to think about it. They might have to think kind of hard about it. And so typically, I think the way these conversations get resolved is the business thinks about it a while they come back, they get over the sticker shock. And then they say something like, well, if this is really going to be 125, then you really have to promise that you can actually deliver this for 125, because if it's really going to be 200, that's not going to work. And the response to that is, well, yeah, we actually had the opportunity to create a good estimate. We actually believe in our estimate of 125. And yes, we actually can deliver at 125 because it's a real estimate, whereas that 75 number that got thrown out early on was a lot more notional. And no, we couldn't have delivered to that. But, you know, that's part of what we're trying to accomplish here is to plant a stake in the ground that we actually have a high chance we can perform to.
0: Yeah, it's a good mix of collaboration and rational decisions. And I think there's a lot of developers that would like to live in that world. Uh, And I think the reason, and again, this is my conjecture, that No Estimates is appealing and resonates is that the conversations don't necessarily go that way every time. And I, but I, I, but I wish they did. I think in the scenarios you've laid out, it's a very reasonable and professional way of estimating software that it would be hard to argue with.
1: (laughs) It's hard to argue with someone who's agreeing with you. And if, uh, if you as the technical person in that conversation are mostly agreeing. And then the other, the other principle I'll throw out is keep dragging the conversation back to what is in the best interests of the organization. And if it really is in the best interest of the organization to commit to uh, a commitment of 75, when our best information says that it's really gonna take 125, well, we'll do that. We'll commit to that. But we're telling you that it's very, very likely that we're not gonna be able to deliver on that. And I think again once people have have time to let the the sticker shock wear off I don't see very many cases where the organization pathologically pushes the team to commit to something that they have really good basis for believing they're they're not going to be able to do. I do think another factor here that's worth bringing back though is that in the scenario you described your team did some good work to come up with an estimate that you all believed in. I think a far more common case due to the lack of competence in creating estimates is that a team will go through an exercise or individuals will go through an exercise and they'll come up with an estimate. But because they lack the skill in creating estimates, they actually still don't believe the estimate. And so when you get into this conversation and the business is very certain that it wants the number to be 75 and the team isn't sure whether it believes that the number is really 125, well, now you've got high confidence combating a low confidence. It's not a big surprise that the business, which is certain it wants 75, ends up out-negotiating the team, which is not certain that it's really 125. And I think that issue mainly needs to get resolved through an improvement in estimation skills. I think I think one of the bigger problems in in those estimation discussions is people do have a hard time defending estimates that they themselves don't believe in. And I think the cure for that is getting better at estimation.
0: Yeah, the half-hearted effort will get smelled out very quickly. I mean, that's something that, you know, from CEO... I mean, down to director and even manager. I think that type of professional on the business side is very good at sniffing out kind of weakness or not, um, or even just that lack of confidence. And that that comes forward very quickly. Um,
1: I think so too. And I think, you know, when they ask those probing questions, they're not asking you, you know, is this story really 13 story points instead of eight, you know, and they're not asking you, did you calculate the velocity of your, your team correctly, they're really trying to assess you as a person. They're trying to probe until they find the point of weakness. And so I think a lot of times technical staff won't really push back until they get probed to the degree where they've got something that is just one tick short of impossible. Uh, Tom Demarco and Tim Lister refer to that as the nano probability schedule, and I think that's a great way to put it. Is developers will let themselves get probed until they agree to the nano probability schedule, which is the the shortest schedule that has a non-zero possibility of coming true. <laughs> and we need to set our limits way, way uh, uh, more comfortable than that. You know, the the business when you press the business they do not want the nano probability schedule the business actually when you press them normally wants a high confidence schedule they want something that you've got 80 or 90% chance of delivering on uh, and that typically of course is going to be a much larger number so uh, so you know i think part of it is recognizing that these non-technical people we're having these discussions with are in fact probing us and we need to not respond in a way that confuses them by agreeing to nano probability options we need to res- we need to push back uh stronger earlier but always with uh always positively and always with an eye toward what is really in the best interest of the business
0: and and just to to tag onto that and always with fact-based arguments yep
1: right? ideally yes and better estimates are in fact going to be fact-based Um, One of the nice things about Scrum is if we have had the opportunity to do a few iterations with an intact team, then we at least have the potential of having velocity data. Uh, We have the potential of having gotten dialed in as a team on what a story point means, for example. Uh, We have the potential possibly to go through our entire release backlog and story point the release backlog and have a really good idea of what the total scope of the project is. And if we've got that and we go into our discussion, and we can say, "Well look, you know the story the the uh, release backlog here is five hundred story points, and our velocity is twenty story points per iteration, and there might be a little bit of variation around that, but you know given the data that we've got, we're looking at a twenty five iteration project you know it might be twenty six it might be twenty four but it's not five and it's not fifty and uh, that that supports quite a nice fact based discussion
0: yeah." We, we definitely know the the project 's bigger than a bread box, but uh, yeah I, I certainly agree that that velocity does that. How do you feel about because uh, this is another concept in the no estimates universe the the idea of counting counting stories versus story points. Do you see any distinction there, or is there some some nuanced differences that we should take into account?
1: you know, I think what this is basically stories and story points essentially fall into the category of proxy based estimation. And we're, when we do proxy-based estimation, there are a couple attributes we want to look at for the math to work out correctly. Uh, one of the things we want to look at is how much variability is there in the things that we're counting. Uh, and another thing we want to look at is numeri- the assumption that we're trying to, to, to take advantage of is the average in the future will work out to be about the same as the average in the past. And so if I say I'm doing about 20 story points per per iteration average, I'm kind of assuming that the next iteration I'll do about 20 story points, and the one after that I'll do about 20 story points. The more data points I have, the more confidence I can have that that will work out. You know, If I've got 10 data points and an average of 20 story points per iteration, for iteration number 11, it might be 17, it might be 22, somewhere in the ballpark of 20. But the idea that it's going to be exactly 20 is at risk. On the other hand, if I can do 10 more iterations, the idea that the average of those next 10 is gonna be close to the average of the first 10, that's a pretty darn safe assumption. So basically, I just approached your question about stories versus story points from a math point of view. To be really safe, I'd like to have ideally at least 20 of whatever the things are that I'm using for estimating any particular thing. And if I've calibrated my um, stories using at least 20 of them, so in other words, I've got, you know, I've gone through however many iterations it took me to do 20 stories, and that gives me a calibration of the number of stories per iteration. I'm going to feel okay about that calibration, but if I then try to project that forward for how long it's going to take me to do four stories or seven stories, I don't have enough stories to be confident in the math. I need, ideally, I need at least 20 of those to, to be very confident in my projection. And so what that means is if I've got 20 stories to start with and I've computed my velocity based on stories rather than story points, I can be I can be reasonably confident how long it will take me to do the next 20 stories. What I'm less confident in is how long it takes me to do the next four or five stories or any four or five stories in that sequence that leads me to a total of 20. So, um, you know, in theory, if I've got a product uh, release backlog that has... You know, 150 stories in it. I can estimate that release backlog with pretty good confidence. With that number of stories, um, as I get into my sprint planning, I'm gonna I'm gonna be less confident.
0: Certainly, and and of course, all of the usual caveats with velocity apply. That if team members swap in and out, or team size changes, or things like that, of course, sure. there's going to be some some reshuffling. But we hope eventually that all averages back out. I think that's that's a pretty common uh, understanding of velocity there.
1: Yep. Yep. So certainly fractional allocation of teams, getting multitasked across projects, right. people going on, people going on vacation, or any anything like that. Yep.
0: So in this example, so we talked about a project that was really, I think it was cost and schedule driven. I think value started at the front, but it turned into a value and cost driven discussion. Uh, there are arguments out there around kind of a value driven. A project with more like uh, budgets as opposed to estimates. I'm sure you saw some of that from Ron in your exchange. Right. Uh, but as we talk about, let's say we have 20 projects, and the business has worked closely with the customers, and the customer feedback is, you know, project A is, is the most that resonates with uh, with us. It's the one that we would purchase. They've done some of that A/B testing and, you know, all of that lean startup type investigation where they put up a site and. They figured out, yes, everyone's clicking here. They all want this type of application or feature or mobile app or whatever it is. So they did that research. They know that this is the most important project. They set a budget. They, they decide that, you know, let's say we have a scrum team with a, a burn rate of 10000 a month. Uh, if only that were true, right? But uh, <laughs> Let's say they have a burn rate of 10000 a month. We want to see what they can do uh, over a 10-month period. We'll budget $100,000 for this experiment because we know this is already the most pressing for our customer. Essentially, the the estimates are more implicit in that scenario, right? But is that, I guess it's still estimation, it's still implicit, but is that a model that you think uh, does have a future? Or are we still going to be cost and schedule driven?
1: Yeah, I think we, we see a lot of context where, the estimates are kind of implicit you know if i 'm building if i 'm building houses in in uh, uh, a development and the houses are all kind of cookie cutter houses, you know some are mirror images of the other or different color trim or whatever you know I might have some variability in the first house I build and maybe in the second house I build, but as I get to my hundredth house. I pretty much have it down at that point. And again, you know, there could be something that causes a couple percentage points difference in the cost. But by the time I do the same thing a large number of times, the variability is just not, you know, is well understood at that point. So the context that you're describing, I think, is one where we've got an intact team. uh, We've got an annual budget fix. I mean, this is the common scenario that we see. And really what's going on is the organization is feeding this team functionality given the budget and uh, an annual – essentially a fixed schedule of an annual budgeting cycle. You know, I think uh, the only time estimation – estimation would come into play in a couple different ways in that scenario. One is – if I've had my team doing this for a couple of years, the organization has had time to say, "Well, I think I need one more person or two more people or one less person, so there's some trial and error there to get to a level of capacity that they're comfortable with for the the uh, the business value being generated so I don't really think of that as estimation. I think of it as more kind of basically you know uh, uh, probe and response um, so where's the role for estimation there? Well, I think the role for estimation there. Is potentially in estimating when you 're going to be done with certain capabilities if the organization is saying, "Well, at what point will this capability come online that certainly is estimation um, but I do think that there are scenarios where where even that isn 't the case it's just the the mission truly is just keep doing the next most useful thing, and we as an organization have concluded that. It makes sense for us to have three people working in this area and just keep feeding them a stream of work, and they keep doing the work as, as effectively as they can, and we keep prioritizing the work so they're always working on the next most important thing. And truly, in that case, I don't think that there's really anything that I would think of as estimation in that scenario. Um, I do think that that you know that sort of uh, that sort of uh, scenario certainly does exist. I don't think that it's a majority case scenario. I see it as, I don't know that it's a corner case, but I see that particular scenario as more like, you know, one of the, um, one of the, the, uh, um, ancillary, uh, cases, but yeah, I mean, we've seen, we've seen organizations that have teams working in that kind of a mode, uh, you know, in particular in a legacy environment and so on. So, Um, I I mean, I I guess I kind of interpret the question as, you know, are there cases where truly estimates are not needed? And I'd say, yeah, I think there clearly are cases where estimates are not needed. I just think that I just um, I think they're they're not the most common scenario from what I've seen. And I also think the fact that there are cases like that does not in any way argue for not developing the professional skill of estimation. I think even those folks will have times when. It would be useful to know what they're doing from an estimation point of view, even if it's just that some more critical than, than average functionality comes on, the, comes on the radar screen and the organization really does care when that's going to be able to come online. It would be nice, in, even in those cases, to be able to actually have some confidence in working with the organization to meet that business need of knowing when that uh, is likely to come online.
0: Certainly. Those are questions that we get, and it's questions that I think anyone in the software industry is still going to have to answer uh, for quite a while. And uh, Steve, I appreciate you bringing all of these things forward. I really have enjoyed talking through these project scenarios and the fact that you're taking the time to to talk through what uh, professional estimation looks like, what it can look like, even in an agile context. I think this is uh, very helpful for the listeners, especially those who are kind of on the fence about this whole no estimates. What, what's funny is, you know, Agile is still, I think, a small part of the IT industry and no estimates is just a fraction of Agile. And and so it is uh, it is one of those kind of out there, kind of advanced concepts with, with varying degrees of, a, of opinion. Do appreciate you helping those people out who are on the fence about or just trying to make sense of the arguments and the discussion. So I thought this was a really uh, good discussion, especially for that purpose.
1: Well, Ryan, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and talk to your audience.
0: Yeah. So Steve, at this point, um, if there's anything that you'd like to get in front of the audience, I know that you have, uh, training courses coming up. I don't know if you're doing conference talks this year or not, but if there's anything coming up, uh, that you would like to make the audience aware of, uh, would certainly love to give you the opportunity to, uh, to promote anything that you have going on.
1: Sure. So, um, I think uh, you mentioned my estimation book. Of course, that's available on uh, Amazon.com and other places. The title is Software Estimation, Demystifying the Black Heart. Uh I think the other source I would direct uh, your audience to is uh, there are some uh, videos uh, available on YouTube. Uh, if you search for Steve McConnell Estimation, you'll be able to find those. And I think finally I would direct people to um, our online training. Uh, we've put a big investment the last few years into – Uh, online uh, training including a fairly detailed estimation class uh, and that URL is ondemand.constructs.com and uh, if you really want to get into depth on estimation there's uh, 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 essentially a two day uh, estimation in depth course uh, on that site uh, uh, as part of many other offerings on that site we will be over the next couple months adding an agile planning and estimation uh, course specifically on that site. We also have a, a scrum bootcamp course on that site as well as a number of other agile classes. We also, we talked about requirements in this conversation and we do have uh, agile requirements class. We've got a regular requirements class. Uh, uh, we've got a product owner uh, class. Uh, so some good stuff related to this topic of requirements and uh, estimation. Uh, and that URL was ondemand.constructs.com.
0: That sounds great. I will make sure to get links to all of those things up in the show notes so that for the listeners out there who want to check out more of, you know, the books are phenomenal. The, I'm sure the classes are, are just as good. If you, for those people that want to check it out, the links will be available. We'll get all of those up there. The YouTube videos I've been watching a number of these. Uh, they're a lot of fun to watch. So it's a lot of great content that uh, Steve has out there. We'll get it linked up so that you guys can check it out. So again, Steve, uh, like I said at the beginning, um, really appreciate you doing this. Uh, Your books have had a huge impact uh, on my career, and I'm sure on many of the the careers of of people out there. So it's just, again, a real treat to be able to do this.
1: Thanks again, Ryan. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans, or visit agileforhumans.com.